payments technology is rapidly changing, and in the United States, discussions and debates are increasingly heating as regulators, innovators, and industry analysts search for more secure and convenient ways for consumers to conduct financial transactions. One Federal Reserve executive says it's time for the U.S. to embrace a more advanced and secure payments technology, also known as EMV chip and pen. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. During this interview, part one of a two-part series, we hear from Richard Oliver an executive vice president with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, where he has, since joining the bank in 1973, held a number of positions that focus on payments and e-commerce. During this interview, Oliver talks about the evolution of payments in the U.S. and how and why a move to EMV needs to be examined more closely by U.S. banking institutions. Hi, Richard. Thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Tracy. Good to be with you. Richard, before we jump into the line of questions that we've lined out for today, could you give the audience a quick overview of your role within the Federal Reserve? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, until January uh, of this year, I would spent the past 12 years as the retail payments product manager for the Federal Reserve System, which means that I've had overall responsibility for the Fed's check and ACH services nationwide. In January of this year, I uh, handed that role over to somebody else as part of a long-term succession plan, and I've taken over responsibility for running a small research group here at the bank called the Retail Payments Risk Forum, something we'd formed two or three years ago that reported to me that I now have direct responsibility for. And and this group is designed to work with regulators, law enforcement, and the banking industry to try to create and be a, a catalyst for collaboration around the detection and mitigation of retail payments risk and fraud. Now, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has in the past set the stage for a number of innovative payment initiatives. Could you please give our audience a little background about the role the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has played in moving certain payments initiatives forward and the direction you see the bank taking as it relates to some of the currently proposed payments innovations? Yeah, you know, when I first came to the bank in 1973, I guess, the bank had already, for some reason, become an organization who was deeply interested in payments and payments technology. And uh, from the time I can remember, we've always been uh, one of the system leaders in the area of check and ACH services. And that role has continued over time. And and during uh, the past 15 years, for example, through the leadership of the Retail Payments Office, we've done such things as facilitate the conversion of paper checks to Check 21 nationally. Uh, led the effort to consolidate 45 paper check processing sites to one uh, over about a four-year period. Uh, We've sponsored a triannual market research study that's available to the whole industry that tries to help people understand what the volume, value, and trends are in retail payments. And along the way, we've developed a, a wide range of new products in both the check side and particularly the ACH side where we've been able to create cross-border international ACH products, uh, launching to uh, even in the past month the same-day ACH product, and a wide variety of risk management and EDI services built around the ACH system. Now, Richard, you joined the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta in 1973, as you just mentioned. And over the course of the last 37 years, the payments landscape in the U.S. has dramatically changed in some ways, and then it's remained relatively stagnant in others. Can you list the top five technological advances or changes you've seen in the payment space, as well as the five lingering technologies you think need to be changed? Okay, so that's a dangerous question, because having been around that long, I'm going to list some things that people think are ancient history, but unfortunately, <laughs> during my lifespan at the work, In in thinking about this, I I think two or three things certainly jump to mind almost immediately, and one of them is the advent of the automated clearinghouse, or ACH. 
this whole process was actually started in 1972 in California and came to Georgia in 73, and I had a chance to be the manager over the first evolution of it here in, in Georgia and ultimately was able to get involved in the first direct deposit programs from the U.S. Treasury Department that sort of became the catalyst for growing the ACH. Uh, another one that comes to mind is the evolution of the ATM and point-of-sale networks. Uh, in the early 70s, uh, ATMs were in the process of being deployed, and they were basically bribing college students with food, trying to get them to use them. And, and now we see this full evolution to card-based technology, ATMs and point-of-sale, and, and a wide variety of things happening around that that's pretty much changed the way that we conduct business at retail locations. I mentioned earlier this conversion of paper checks to electronic checks through the realities of the Check Truncation Act that was implemented in 2004. And over the past five years, we've seen 100% paper deposits that the Federal Reserve moved to only about 2% paper. And we're almost through a full conversion to the electronification of the check in the clearing and settlement process. I think probably the biggest technology Innovation is, is one that everyone would probably jump on, and that's the Internet. It's totally changed the way we do banking. I think it's totally changed the way that people interact uh, with retailers and bankers and has facilitated significant improvements in the payments process by driving so many things to electronic. And then finally, I think the one that I would add to the list that's happening now, and I'm not sure it's easy to crystallize what the technological basis of this is quite yet, but it's globalization. With the globalization of commerce, there comes the necessity to globalize the payment systems that support that commerce, and that's something that isn't done very well right now. And so there are many groups working on standards and technology and, and other aspects of globalization of payments that can make this more of a reality than it is today. The bottom five list, the lingering problems list, you know, is interesting too because I think it's always interesting in an industry to see the kinds of stuff that doesn't happen and wonder why. And, and at the top of that list is probably electronic data interchange or EDI. I remember going to conferences over 20 years ago where, you know, everybody was getting worked into a froth and everybody was excited that we were going to eliminate the exchange of paper documentation around the whole purchase and order cycle and payment cycle. And, Frankly, it hasn't happened. The latest data shows that about 80% of all of the business-to-business -business payments today are still made by check, which means that all the related documentation about the purchase, sale, order, and what have you is still being transacted uh, separate from the payment and in many cases in paper form. So I think that one is, is a big frustration. I think I mentioned the advent of the ACH and its growth, and it's done a lot of wonderful things, but one thing it hasn't done is changed its availability schedules. Uh, in other words, most ACH payments are still on a two-day cycle. You deposit one day, and you can clear the next at the earliest. And I think the needs of our country have gone beyond that. And so we need to be driving the system now to provide more of a same-day service uh, that would facilitate the movement of even more payments into the ACH. A big example here is hourly payrolls, which are not in the ACH today because the current cycle doesn't allow them to be cut in time to be deposited at the bank in time. Cross-border payments is another big issue. Uh, fundamentally, other than in card systems, there is no simple, easy, inexpensive uh, way to handle small-value payments across borders. And we're experimenting with that with cross-border ACH systems. Europe is moving in that direction, but it isn't here yet.
in the card world, the whole idea that somehow the standards of the cards being issued in various countries has gotten out of whack so that we're about to approach a period where universal use of our cards is going to be impossible, particularly if the U.S. stays with the old mag-stripe standard, and we can talk more about that later in this conversation, but that's a big one. And then finally, uh, the lack of a focus on the risks associated with payments and the lack of investments in managing those risks, particularly at large financial institutions, is something that I think is a lingering problem that's going to have to be addressed in the future. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this mag stripe issue that you mentioned. You voiced criticism over the U.S.'s continued use of the magnetic stripe. You've proposed that the U.S. initiate a move to chip and pen or EMV, but that proposed move has been met with much resistance over the last five to ten years. Now, given the controversy over EMV, what kinds of reactions have you gotten from the industry in response to your public support of a move toward EMV in the United States? And are you a minority voice among bankers? As I became more and more aware of this issue and, and wrote some blogs on it that eventually got published in various places and started a huge exchange of articles and other things, I, I guess I actually didn't realize how toxic the issue was to begin with. You know, I don't know that I'm a, a small voice in the wind or not. The more people I talk to, the more people I hear intellectually agreeing that this needs to be done. I think across the board, almost all players in the industry believe that we need to move to chip and pin. But I think they also believe that the obstacles to getting there are pretty imposing and as a result, it seems to me, are somewhat paralyzed in moving forward. It's almost like we're concerned about the things we have to do, so we're not going to get started. And I, and I think that's really the kind of trap we're in right now, and it certainly was aggravated by the financial crisis, which I think has slowed and stopped many, many projects in the payments area due to lack of investment dollars. So what do you think makes the timing right for EMV? I mean, do you think that U.S. bankers, you say that intellectually they agree that maybe it's, it's time to make this move, but if we continue to wait, as you say, we're only going to be digging a deeper hole. So what makes the timing right now? How can we move forward? I think the thing that makes the timing right is the fact that the rest of the world is making commitments and our closest neighbors, including Canada, for example, who's on a five-year plan to eliminate mag strike, is going to force us to think about doing something in this area. The problems of being incompatible are going to become more magnified. Uh, for example, Today, if you go to Europe and you've got your MagStripe card with you and you try to use it at an unattended location as a debit card, whether it's uh, you know a parking lot or transit or something like that, chances are you won't be able to use it. And increasingly, I was just on an airplane with somebody this week who said that he tried to use his MagStripe card in an ATM in Germany and had a lot of difficulty finding an ATM to use it in. Sooner or later, the inconveniences of this and the problems of this with respect to consumers and their utilization of cards and businesses and their utilization of cards across the globe is, is going to be a defining factor that's going to cause action to be crystallized. Having said that, I mean, there's another factor, too, and, and, and that is the issue related to fraud. I think there's been a lot of documentation of the significantly reduced fraud curves that we're seeing in the U.K. and across Europe as they move to chip and pin. Uh, one has to assume that uh, as those numbers go down, they're going to go up someplace else because uh, everything I've learned about fraud and risk management is the bad guys just go to someplace else where it's easier. There seems to be pretty strong thinking within the U.S. payments industry that that fraud could migrate here to the United States. Secondly, a lot of concern expressed now in, from foreign issuing banks uh, who are issuing cards that are both MagStripe and chip and pin capable that people are going to come to the United States and use the MagStripe aspects of it to commit fraud and therefore 
with the exporting fraud, these things are going to crystallize. It just seems inevitable to me. Having said that, we have some pretty big issues in the way. And in particular, we have this whole thing about building out the infrastructure to handle chip and pin. And I think that that is the one you hear the most about. There are other issues involved here that have to be resolved. But the fact of the matter is the estimates I've seen from various industry pundits range anywhere from 8 to $13 billion to build out the chip and pin infrastructure across the country. The reported fraud loss numbers and other things that would potentially fund that through savings uh, haven't certainly seemed to be big enough to create a business case. We've just heard from Richard Oliver, an executive vice president with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, in the first part of a two-part interview. Stay tuned for part two, during which we talk with Oliver about the role the mobile channel is expected to play in the migration toward chip and pin payments, as well as the impact escalating debit card fraud is likely to have on consumers and the industry. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.